Hello, Revelers. Today, I've got Phil Factor here to discuss his lifelong love of teaching people a lot more football than we normally have on Revel Revel, but that's okay. I think that you're really going to appreciate this, particularly because tonight is the first presidential debates, and I think that he is the antithesis to what's been happening in politics recently and will renew your faith and maybe get you through the rest of this election season. So sit back, enjoy Phil Factor. Hello, and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble, and today my guest is the amazing Phil Factor. Hello, everybody. I'm Phil Factor. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a trip. Okay, so... Mr. Factor is like one of my favorite people of all time, but also from Mount Carmel. And if you have listened to any of the other episodes, you know, I pretty much always start off with how we know each other. And I like to hear from your point of view, what you remember about that initial stuff, the initial meeting and getting to know each other stuff. Sounds great. So back in uh, 1983, I was the class advisor of the graduating class in 1983. And uh, right about that time, I felt a real emptiness because the kids that I had worked with for four years were gone. And so I was thinking, what am I going to do with my time? You know, it's these kids that I helped, you know, set up a prom and a graduation and built homecoming floats with are gone. And then I I recognized that there was a whole new group of freshmen coming in. And a couple of them were brothers and sisters of the kids that I had just worked with. And so anyway, I uh, decided that I was going to become the class advisor of the class of 1987. And that's how Lauren and I met. She was one of the members of the class of 1987. And I got to tell you this, that these kids for the next four years, were so important to me. They, uh, they were like nieces and nephews. And not only that, but they made the best babysitters in the world. Because right about that time, my wife, Laurel, decided that she was going to go back to college. And she went up to LA. And so I was a Mr. Mom. And so right after school, the kids would come running up to the school, my sons, and they were nine years old, 11 years old. And of course, they had homework. And the only one who was really going to make them do homework were my students. And Lauren was one of them. And Lauren actually adopted one of my sons and really, you know, helped him out and made sure he was doing his homework and made sure, you know, he was reading and doing his work. But I, I got to tell you that the class of 1987 was the greatest group of kids that I ever worked with in my 41 years of teaching. To this day, I consider them my kids. I consider them my nieces and nephews, and Lauren is one of my nieces. Even though we don't see each other much, she knows I love her. She knows that uh, I am definitely that person that you know wants to be a part of her life all the way through her life forever and ever and ever. And there's a lot of these 1987 kids that we had the same um, relationship with, and you know it's just a, a tremendous group of kids. 
They've been over at my house. They know my wife. They're at my retirement party. Some of them are helping me uh, right now as I'm running for political office, which I you know, don't want to talk about a whole lot today on this show because this is really what Lauren has explained to me, a reveal of things that have happened in my life. But one of the greatest things I got to tell you that happened in my life was the class of 1987 from Mount Carmel High School. So that's uh, how Lauren and I met. Wow, that was a lovely recap. And of course, I'm biased. I think the class of 87 is best. Let's just all agree that it is. And then we'll also have to agree that you had a lot to do with it. And they better be watching the show. Listening, but yes. see both of yes, us yes. Yeah, listening. Okay, how many years? 40, 40 what? I actually taught 41 years. 41. Okay, so what year did you start teaching? So the first year that I actually started teaching was against the law. I was 20 years old and there was, you, you might even know, do you remember Joe Radovich? He was the uh, yeah. softball coach yeah. at Mount Carmel. Joe would boogie out to uh, coach softball at Rubido High School back in, um, I believe the year was 1972. And I would cover for him and I was just 20 years old at the time. So until I actually had an adult ed teaching credential, you know, I was actually teaching illegally and covering for him like as a substitute teacher. And then uh, it came to the point where I actually had an adult ed credential. So at age 21, as soon as I hit 21, I started teaching and I ended my teaching career. So I actually started in 1973. And then the last year I actually taught was 2014. So that's a whole lot of years. 38 at Mount Carmel High School. Okay. I have so many things I want to do now as an adult to get to know you better. Sounds cool. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in San Fernando Valley. I went to Granada Hills High School, and it was a three-year high school. It was a part of what they call the Baby Boomers School in the middle of the San Fernando Valley. And when I graduated in 1971, we had the largest graduating class in the entire United States. And how many people? It was incredible. It was over 2,500 people. What? And right next to us was James Monroe High School, and they had the second most. Crazy. Okay, so what about college? Where did you go to school? So I went to UC Riverside, and the way I got in, <laughs> this is kind of part of the story, and I, and, and I do want to talk a little bit about my high school experience. Okay. But anyway, I uh, was a football player, and although I was, I've only been as tall as five foot eight, you know, when you get older my age, you start shrinking. That's, hmm. that's one of those aging things. But at one time, I was five foot eight, and uh, if I would have been six foot six, I would have still, you know, been playing pro football. But anyway, I was a tiny guy and I went looking for colleges that to be able to play football at. And one of the colleges that was way interested in me was the University of California at Riverside. So I decided to go there because I knew I'd get the best education. I also knew that it was about two hours away from where I grew up. And so I would be able to go back and see my girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, that was really important in terms of the decision making. But I went to UC Riverside and went there for four years. And then the fifth year, I got my teaching credential and um, became a teacher, you know, a full-time teacher. Uh, later on in the year 2000, I finished my master's degree at Azusa Pacific University. So I have a master's in psychology with a specialty in counseling and a what we call a pupil personnel services credential, 
which means that I can actually counsel people from kindergarten all the way through as seniors in, in life. So um, I have an educational counseling degree. A lot of other units that I got, I, I probably have the equivalent to a doctorate degree in terms of the schooling that I have, but uh, you know, I never had the chance to, to after, go after my doctorate degree. So I love school and I, I, I love going to school. I'm glad you brought up the counseling, but I'm going to shelve that intentionally for my, for my own okay. questions. I'm sure that you'll weave it through your stories, actually, because what I know of you. You said you wanted to go back to your high school experience, though, so go for it. So what you told me about this show is kind of like things that have really been impacting in my life and, and things that have changed feel factor or that things that maybe might inspire other people. And, and, you know, you and I talked about this show probably months ago, I think all the way back in the June and July. And I, you know, I've had a long time to think about it, but these are the things that I'm going to be sharing that really have changed my life. And the first one was the first day at Granada Hills high school when I met the football coaches and I went up to this table and I said, I'm Phil Factor and I want to play football. And the coaches looked at me and they kind of laughed mm. and they said, fat boy, kind of like they didn't say it, but you knew that they were thinking that this is a fat chubby kid that is a non-athletic kid that is saying he wants to play football. And they asked me the question, you know, what position do you want to play? And I said, I want to play offensive tackle. And they said, well, tackles in our league are six foot two and weigh 220 pounds. You can't possibly be a tackle. And I thought to myself, oh, 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 oh I'm kind of hurt. You know, I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, I, I'm probably not going to be a football player. These guys don't like me right from the get-go. And so anyway, I ended up starting this physical fitness program on the off-season there. And I went from doing zero pull-ups zero bar dips to being able to do 18 pull-ups. I went from weighing about 195 pounds and being, you know, five foot seven at the time and, you know, just being a chubba boba. And I ended up going to the point where, you know, like young boys' bodies really develop right about that age of 14 to 15. And that's what I was. And it was like my body just totally changed. And all of a sudden, I started enjoying running instead of regretting it. I started enjoying lifting weights. And the very first year playing football, I went both ways. I was the offensive guard, and I was a defensive tackle. And it was a positive experience. Our team was average. You know, we won most of our games. But uh, right after, you know, the guys that I hung out with were really cool guys. I joined the Letterman's Club, and that was pretty big time. We went to a lot of dances and activities. So then the following year, so when I was a junior, we had these giant guys. They were just like mammoth, and they were supposed to be all world, and they were supposed to be this great and that great. Six of them ended up making the WFL and the NFL. So they were really talented guys. But they never really cared much for each other. They, they got in a lot of fights. They never played together very well. They were inconsistent. You know, some of them were into the drug scene and, and they were more into partying than they were playing together. So then it became my senior year. And on the off season, we would wake up at seven in the morning and start working out. I played on one of the most famous teams to this day in the city of Los Angeles. 
and I was the right guard. So I have many questions. Why were you one of the most famous? Was it because of your winning record or why? Well, that too. But besides playing in front of 18,000 people at Birmingham Stadium, which doesn't hold 18,000 <laughs> people, people were on roofs of, of buildings and everything else. It was being broadcast. So that, that was another probably, you know, probably another 20,000 that heard the game. But we actually invented the uh, West Coast offense, which is now being used in pro football and in college football. In fact, later on, John Elway came to our school, and he was actually the quarterback years after my team. But it was my team that, that really started the, the passing game, the spread offense. And another reason why we were most famous was who we played against at the opposing school, which is San Fernando High School. And the quarterback and the, their all-star was a guy by the name of Anthony Davis. And Anthony Davis was a runner-up for the Heisman Trophy. He should have won it. He still holds the record for USC. He was number 25 against Notre Dame. He had five touchdowns in a single game. And he was the guy that we uh, went against in our championship game, and we ended up beating his team. So it was a famous game. At the end, there ended up being a, a full-on riot because of the racial tension between the two schools. But uh, anyway, to this day, I could walk around town, and, and I tell people, I played at Granada Hills High School, and they said, did you play on the famous 1970 football team? And I said, I'm just, to this day, I'm the team captain, and it was my team. Oh. So when, when I look back at it, here are these coaches that I, I, I went to that table, and they said, oh, you'll never make it. You know, you're not one of those guys that we think we're going to have play offensive tackle or, or make the team. And I ended up being the captain of that football team that led our team into the LA City Championship and won it. And I'm, it changed my life. It, it, it was one of those experiences that I transformed from being a non-athlete to an athlete. And then later on, of course, it got me into college. Um, and I ended up spending um, a good 20 years coaching as a football coach and later on even coaching my own kids in other sports. So, so that was one of the moments So my life that changed. How did you get them to take you seriously? Had you ever even played Pop Warner or anything? None. None. And, you know, in, in order to prove yourself when, when you're on the football field, um, it, it's, it's hard work and determination. But it, it, it was the dedication that I had. Um, it was the hard work. And it was the fact that I knew that I was going to be that champion. And, and I, I got to say this, you know, and we'll get to this, but I am a very driven person. I have an A-type personality. I am one of those that um, go over and above what most people ever do. Sometimes that causes me a lot of problems. But like right now, I'm running for a political office. And I find as I am campaigning that I am that same guy on that football field that plays with 100% of his heart, plays with 100% of his determination, plays with this, this, this idea that I'm going to cross the, the finish line and that I'm going to be a champion. And, and it, it, it was... I'm going to tell you this. When I was a kid, this is, I always look back at some stories. And one of my favorite stories was a little train, I think I can, I think I can. And that train made it over that hill. 
Well, Phil Factor always thinks of, I was that train, that little train that no one thought could make it over the hill, but the train did it. And at the end, the train proved it to all the townspeople and all the you know people that were on it, that it had what it took to make it over that hill. And I was that guy. And I think that's probably one of those times because of, of all that experience that I gained confidence that has really pushed me all the way through my life. So trying to make sense of all this, it's easy to look back, especially success after success after success and forget maybe how you got there. How, how did you get to be so driven and so confident even at the beginning to say, I want to play football when you never had, when you weren't in shape. Right. I mean, where, where did you get that chutzpah from? Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's probably because I was a challenged child. When growing up, I always wanted to be in the reading group. Number one, I always wanted to be, you know, picked on a team. I always wanted to be a leader. And I found that I was actually challenged. I, I couldn't read. Uh, you know, I had a lot of people that, that said, you know, this is how you do it. But I could memorize, you know, C-spot run, C-spot jump, C, you know, Bill, C-sue. And I could memorize things, but I actually couldn't read. And I found out that because I had that inferiority complex of not being able to do well in school, but always wanting to be the top student, I always felt like challenged and I always tried to do best at other things. So when it came to a classroom situation, I was always the good kid because I, I knew if I could be as good as I could as a person, then I knew that that would make up for some of the fact that I couldn't read. And then I also knew that if I always volunteered for things like helping out in the classroom or help my teacher, I knew that that would be another way. And I always made sure that when the teachers asked questions, I was the first guy to raise my hand and, you know, to answer the question, mainly because usually the first question you could figure it out by looking at a picture and I could read pictures, but I couldn't read the words. So um, I found that early on in, that I was very, very competitive and wanting to succeed. I also got to tell you, later on in life, um, I've looked just to that same question you asked me about, what is it that, that might have made you that person? And I actually read a book about one of my ancestors, and this is going to blow you out, but I'll, I'll tell you, one of my ancestors was the great Max Factor. Yeah the guy that invented all the cosmetics, that invented the bob haircut, that invented lip mascara and lipstick and even the compact. And when I read about my Uncle Max, my great, great Uncle Max, I saw Phil Factor. I saw that he was a driven person, that he was that A-type personality, that, that, that he would never ever take no for an answer. He'd figure out a solution to, to making something work and making it better than everybody else. And it's, it's weird. You know, you always look for, you know, where did I get this from? And I think I got it from my great, great uncle Max. Wow. I didn't know you were related to him. So um, let's, let's <laughs> yes. go back to the challenge part. So were you dyslexic? I am. You are. I am still dyslexic. Yes, I am. And 
Very much And I so. think that you're right that I should say it that way because whenever I hear dyslexics talk about it, people, they say, I am. You have techniques, yes. but it doesn't make it go away. It's just techniques to handle it, right? No. It, it, it actually, to me, it forces me to learn more and learn in a way that no one else needs to understand but Phil Factor. And it's, it's kind of like coming up with reprogramming my mind to be able to be successful. So I, I got to tell you that, that story real quick. So when I was in college, my first year, uh, here I am, never had read, a, a truly never had read a book. In fact, in high school, I, I got through reading all those little, what do they call those books? Um, you know, when they're, they're real small, but it's, it's about like Moby Dick. And oh, the cliff notes. Real cliff yep. notes. So I read the cliff notes or I saw the movie and I would write up as much as I could about what I remembered from the movie or the cliff notes to get through on a, on a book report. And I would, you know, hand it in. Most of my papers had more red ink on them than they had my blue or, or, or black ink. So I, I really went through the, 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 uh, what do they call that when, you know, you walk through and all the things are coming at you. Well, anyway, I, I walked through the war on, on English. So when I um, went to college, I'd never read a book and really couldn't write a paper. So I took dumbbell English required and I flunked it. And I thought, wow, you know, in those days I had to pay $45 to take this outside course that you were supposed to have accomplished before you got into the university of California. So anyway, I flunked the course and I thought, okay, how am I going to get through this? I just flunked a course. I can't flunk because I'm on this college agreement that I have to maintain grades to stay at the university. Cause I actually got in there just because I was a football player. I didn't have the grades. So I took it again and I wish I knew the name of this teacher, but at the very end, she pulled me aside and she says, I need to talk to you. She goes, I'll make you a deal. I will pass you if you promise to see a psychologist. Hmm. And I said, what? I'm not crazy. I'm not, what do you mean see a psychologist? She goes, I think you have some reading challenges and I think that it would benefit you to see an educational psychologist to try to figure out what's going on in your head so that you can understand why you can't read and why you can't write. And so I thought to myself, well, I don't want to be thought of as something wrong with me because if you tell people you go see a shrink or a psychologist, they're, they're thinking that this guy isn't doesn't have his act together. And like I said, I, I was always concerned about what other people think of me. Well, anyway, I took it on and I went to see that psychologist. One session. And you know what that psychologist said to me? He couldn't believe that I was so successful. He couldn't believe that I had my act together. He couldn't believe that I was one of those people that had such high goals going on in my life. And he said, if you really want to read, you got to start all over. You got to learn how to read. You got to learn how to write. And he said, you got to slay the dragon. Mm. And I said, slay the dragon. And, and I really started thinking about that, that I have tried to sidestep and try to do everything I could except for take on the big problem, which was learning how to read and learning how to write. So something that I, I didn't share earlier, and this is really the probably the most important thing that I can tell you in this entire um, 
broadcast. I am married to my high school best friend. <sighs> if you can see me right now, I'm getting a little emotional. On October 16th, in two or three weeks here, we will be together 50 years. Wow. 50 years. And, and she is the only girl that I ever kissed. Oh, that's so and she, sweet. To this day, has has been the backbone behind me and has been a part of my story. And um, we still actually go on dates. We we still that's good. Here we have been married since the year 1974. So we graduated high school together in 1971. But we married each other in 1974. So when I was in college, I would write her love letters. And I could write, I love you, XOXOXO. And I, you know, I started writing to her and writing started becoming easier. And then I started, you know, picking up more and more books and I started to learn how to write. When we got married at the age she was 20 and I was 21, I now had a, a personal secretary. So I would write the papers all the way up until two in the morning, I would wake her up and she would be my secretary and proof my word and type it. And she didn't have a college education at the time, but she's always been as bright as can be. So she was able to go through my material and make it look like I knew what I was talking about because I couldn't do it myself. And so um, I was learning how to learn while I was going through the University of California, Riverside. I started off with a GPA of a 2.23, and I graduated with a 2.78. So once I got married, my grades shot up to Bs, and by my senior year, a B wasn't a very good grade to me. I had to get an A because I learned how to learn. But I also had assistance by my wife being able to proof my work and actually put it together. When I went off to graduate school, I ended up being the honor student, the top of my class, and the leader of my graduating class in my master's degree. And that's because of the computer. Because most dyslexic people, once they are able to use kinesthetic type learning, and they're able to use the other modalities, it allows them to be able to program their brain the, the way they need to program it. So giving the opportunity to work on a computer and do my master's degree, I shined. It's a long story, isn't it? No, but it's all got so much stuff. And okay, so I don't know how many minutes in because I didn't look at the clock, but I knew that one of us, probably both of us would end up crying. We're like not even 20 <laughs> minutes in and, I, and you, you've made me tear up already. So before we delve into any more stuff, let me just give a little bit more background because there are some people even in my regular followers who may never have had you for a teacher who may never have been involved with our class you know and so don't really know you except the name and we'll come back to so much about school but i want to give a, a, a sort of a brief overview that mr factor coach factor however you call him is the biggest teddy bear on the planet. And at some point, pretty much all the time, one of us ends up crying. And um, mm. I knew that this one might be more emotional, uh, less cerebral than other episodes, you know, whatever. And um, 
I just can't believe how much I didn't know about you, but it's so much makes sense. Like when I hear your story just so far, which is like the tip of the iceberg, really, it explains so much about you and why you were an effective role model and example. See, I'm crying now <laughs> uh, to all of us. Oh, I love you. I love you. Okay. Thanks. So, and, um, they're love tears. You oh, guys. totally. Um, <laughs> so, and, uh, my nephew is dyslexic and he struggles every day and, um, I can't wait till his mom hears this. So, okay. Let's go back though to. Do you mind if I, I say something about dyslexia? Sure. Yeah. And I can wipe my tears away while you do that. It's, it's about discovering <laughs> yourself. It's, it's about never, ever giving up. And, and once you find out how your brain works, because a lot of people will tell you that your brain should work this way. Or a lot of people will say, well, this is how you should read, or this is how you should outline, or this is how you should write. But you actually have to learn it yourself and you have to be able, it's almost like you have your own foreign language that you speak your own language and it's up here in the head. Um, in fact, a lot of us dyslexics make up words or we, we say words that um, no one else really understands. Like I'll add S's onto words. Uh, my son's always tease me because whenever I say this area in Poway that's called Garden Road, I always call it Garden Roads. And then when I look at my writing, I always see S's being missed or words being missed, or it's really hard on a cell phone because I'll text someone and I'll look at it and say, oops, I, 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 I didn't say this right or I left out stuff because my brain works sometimes at a different pathway then I actually am able to articulate. So a lot of times yeah. us dyslexics, a lot of times um, we know what we're saying, we know what we're thinking, but we have a, a tendency to confuse other people. We're not confused, mm -hmm. but other people are confused by our writing or what, we're, what we say. So it, it, it does a, a lot of times um, eat at us dyslexics at, at our, our self-confidence. And so we, that's the big thing. Never, ever, ever lose your confidence. And I don't care who you are. Always believe in yourself. And by the way, one of the topics I hope we get into is my philosophy of humanism. And that means oh, totally. loving yes. who you are. And, and, and I am a humanist. So it, it did help me, just like that little train that I talked about, that little train, I think I can. I had to believe in those stories to be able to get through college. I had to believe in those stories to make it through on the football field. And right now, as I am running for political office, I am that little train going against the incumbent and I'm going to win. I am going to make it over the hill and the people are going to realize that I am the best guy for the job. Um, you know, and let me say this, Lauren, I, I want to tell you this other thing. When I became a teacher, I realized that my real gift wasn't the academics. It was the people part. It was caring Definitely. about people. It was caring about my students that were in the class of 1987. And I didn't care about them so much as how well they did in school academically. I cared about them as people in their life. And, and so, you know, I will accept being that teddy bear because I love the fact that I got as much hugging as I threw out 
the hugging back. Um, I needed it from you guys. You guys completed my life. And, and like I said to you, that you guys took care of my kids and you were there for me when my wife was up at USC getting her education. I had a secondary family and it was my students. It was a class in 1987. You guys were my family. You still are. <laughs> oh, this episode might be called Tears of Joy or blubbery messes or something okay so let's try to let's try to focus right. so we're focused you're, you're at you're at ucr yes. what are you majoring in so i was a sociology major and a physical education minor sociology just made so much sense because i was so interested in people and um i am probably okay one of the greatest educational experiences i had when i was at uc riverside was my roommates were black and um, I was able to uh, learn about how I felt, not about how my parents were telling me to think about black people. I learned about how Phil Factor believed that black people were my brothers, that they were people that I, they were my teammates, that they were people that I could trust, they, that, I, that I could enjoy spending time with. And I wasn't taught that, I was, I was taught to not trust people and not trust people of different colors. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a family where there was bad words said towards other people and other cultures. Um, I was, I don't know if you know this or not, but I grew up as a, um, in, in the religion of Judaism. I, I was bar mitzvah and went through all that. And I was expected mm -hmm. to marry a Jewish woman. I was expected to be a doctor. I was expected or to be a lawyer. And I chose to marry someone who was not Jewish. I chose someone to marry who um, came from the other side of the tracks. As my parents would say, you know, you could do better. That's, and and they, they, even to the day they died, they did not accept my wife. And so I also grew up with that. And, but back to my roommates, Joe and Pierre, and uh, you know, those guys changed my life. So when I was going through UC Riverside, I made a point of being culturally open to learning about all people. And as a sociologist, I just spooned that up. I, I just love the fact that I could study people and culture and group interaction, and that I could get an understanding of what people are all about. And again, I, I know I keep on talking about my political campaign, but I am for the people, by the people, and I am the person that will say to the city council, stop talking about this group and that group, be inclusive, include all people, because all people should have the opportunity to thrive and survive and, and live in a great community like I live in, which is Poway. And so I learned that at UC Riverside. So what did I major in? I majored in people. People. I knew you were going to say people. Awesome. Okay. So you're majoring in sociology and you're playing football. Yes. Which came first? Did you decide that you wanted to teach or did you decide you wanted to coach? No, I knew I wanted to coach because I knew I wasn't going to play pro football. I was too small. I knew that um, my football career wasn't going to be all that great in college because the guys that I was playing against and playing with were all those 220, six foot two guys. And I was only that five foot eight guy weighing 195 to 200 pounds. And I knew that um, my best bet as a football career was going to be going into coaching. 
So I knew that I was going to be a teacher and I knew I was going to be a coach even before I got into high school. Oh. The first actual group I coached were girls. It was our seniors. It was a powder puff group. Even my wife was on that team. When I got to UC Riverside and I played football there, I, I, I did a great job. I was the strong guard. I was so good that they flip-flopped me depending on where the play went. But I wasn't good enough to make the varsity level. And that uh, spring, I got hurt. And I blew out my knee. The doctor said, uh, I asked him, will I ever be able to play football again? And he said, you'll be lucky to walk right. Dude. And I started crying. And I, I knew that my football career had ended. And even though I tried to make a comeback, I knew that my best thing was to go right into coaching. So my sophomore year of college, I started coaching right away. I coached two years at Rubidoux High School. And I impressed the head coach so much when he went up to Chafee Junior College and became the offensive coordinator, he asked me to be his graduate assistant and go up there and coach college football. So I was coaching college football at the age of 20 and 21 years old. <laughs> now, now get this. Some of these guys on the team were coming right out of Vietnam. They had already seen some really unincredible stuff. I mean, some 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 things that I'm sure post-traumatic stress issues. They had experienced that. And here I am, a 20 and 21-year-old guy telling them to hit the grass, do push-ups, take a lap, you know, and do this. And I think they thought I was a joke because of my age. But I experienced a lot and, and I learned a lot of football. We weren't very successful, but I was always successful with the players and the players really did, you know, especially the ones that gave me a chance. They all liked. So what serendipitous thing brought you to Mount Carmel in the first place? Uh, that's cool. So in, in those days, this was 1975, 76, actually 76. Um, teaching jobs were really hard to find, especially in San Diego and especially in a place like Palo Unified. I went to a football clinic and football clinics, usually the coaches come in their shorts and, you know, their tennis shoes and they, you know, come, you know, just really relaxed. It's probably more drinking and having fun with the other coaches. And I came there with a clipboard. I wore a, a long sleeve shirt and a tie. And I sat up in the front row and this football coach, his name was John Self, saw me. And he goes, I'm wondering, who is that guy? Well, anyway, I sent in this postcard that he had where he was looking for a, a job. And I didn't know it or not. But anyway, I applied for this job. I showed up on the interview and he goes, I remember you. You, was, you were the guy with the tie and the clipboard. And you were the serious, you know, young coach interested in what was going on and he hired me ah, <laughs> nice um, one other thing that really helped me was the principal was a guy by the name of dr dave stein a great guy and his kid was going to uc berkeley and he knew that anybody that got an education through the university of california had to work really hard to do it you know to get it to get a credential and to get their their degree so Dr. Stein also believed in me. And then there was one other guy. His name was Pat Holligan. He was the athletic director. Do you remember Pat Holligan? Were no. you there then? No. Mm -mm. Well, anyway, Pat came from Bishop Armand. 
where this guy by the name of John John McKay and Pat Hayden went. If you know anything about USC football, they went to USC. And also the fact that um, Pat Hayden ended up playing, you know, pro football and, and stuff like that for the Rams. Anyway, we were supposed to play them for the state championship, but we could never, ever get our two teams to play one another because they couldn't uh, credential the game. They couldn't, couldn't allow it. But Pat knew about my, my football experience, and he knew about my football team. So, again, Pat was one of those guys as the athletic director that wanted me to be the head JV football coach there. Okay. So, basically, you would have gone to any school from that coaches. Yes. I, I, I strictly came to Mount Carmel first as a football coach before I did an actual teacher. And I'll tell you, that brought on a lot of jealousy. Most of the teachers thought, oh, we got another coach here. The only reason why he has a job is because he's a football coach. And, you know, he's another dumb jock, you know, and that's what they thought of me first coming in. So did you start teaching your typical classes like right away or how did, how did that evolve? Yes. So I was given a full, you know, full course, you know, of a load. And so I just started teaching right at Mount Carmel High School. And I really didn't have that much classroom teaching experience. Most of my experience was teaching physical education. And most of my experience, of course, was on the football field. So here I am, a rookie teacher coming into the classroom and having very little classroom experience at all. So were you always, did you start off teaching sociology? Yes. Oh, okay. The whole time there, only probably one semester, another teacher in the 38 years taught sociology. I had it all 38 years. Oh, wow. Um, Halfway through, Miss Rhodes, who is Mm -hmm. one of my loves, good friends, Josie uh, stopped teaching psychology and I asked to teach it. And so I taught it after Josie moved to the English element of, of teaching. So sociology and psychology. Yes. Is really wait. Um, can I add one more class? Of course. Because it's way important in my life was teaching the ELL or the ESL, the kids that came from other countries that couldn't speak English. And again, from what I was sharing with you about learning about people at UC Riverside, I was that guy that when the Vietnamese kids came off the boats and came to our school, I became their uncle. And I became that person that really loved them and really cared about them. And eventually I, you know, at the end, I was actually had an international club of kids that even came to my house, you know, for pool parties and stuff like that. So the ESL program was really important to me because I could relate, you know, being dyslexic, these kids didn't speak English. So here I am, you know, struggling with English, and I'm teaching them how to speak English. And I was the right guy to do that, because I understood the struggles of having to learn a language that was a difficult language, such as English. So at what point in your teaching, did you decide either, hey, I actually am qualified and prepared to cover these subjects and topics that these kids are going through? Or at at, at no point did you ever say that you're ready and qualified and prepared, that you just have the right heart for it? Um, Because I had to work so hard as a student, I actually 
had to work harder than the average student that got a college degree. So I retained the information because I had to work so hard at it. So it wasn't just a subject matter. It was something that I really understand thoroughly and that I really bought into. And so it, when I started teaching sociology, it was really the easy subject. And the same with psychology. It was the really easy subject. World history was a little more difficult. I chose to teach world history, which really fit into the sociology part because it was more cultural. And there was a lot of cultural elements. Plus, another course that I really liked going through at UC Riverside was anthropology. And so I was always able to teach cultural anthropology and, you know, the idea that uh, linguistics and language and arts and stuff like that were all about trying to understand people. I want to try to rephrase my question because you said, you know, that you were, you majored in people and that you really cared about the people and the kids. And, you know, when you go to college, you're learning a subject and when you're getting your teaching credential, the credentialing process is of course different every year. So I won't even go into that, but I just can't imagine that any teacher really feels like they have not just a breadth of knowledge on the subject that they'll be teaching, but people and how to meet the kids and how to know what they're going through and how to, how to figure out how to present the material, you know, and all that stuff. Because by the time I met you, you know, you've been teaching for quite a long time. So I, to me, you just look like a natural who does it all from the heart and knows how to do all this. But At some point, you had to be the beginner. You had to be the one figuring it out and say to yourself, I'm not ready for this. I wasn't trained for this or whatever. No, 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 no. I got to tell you something, Lauren. So my very first year, I'm trying to figure out who I am as a teacher. I knew I was a football coach and my football players just adored me. They loved me. To this day, I'm Coach Factor. To anybody that ever played for Phil Factor, I'm still that coach, as I consider myself the 12th man in the huddle, the, the, the person that wasn't just a coach, but I really had that love for my players and they knew it. When I started teaching in the classroom, and, and I'm going to mention this young man who has passed, but this young man had gone through a lot of stuff. His name was Lillard Kennedy. And Lillard was less than 100 pounds. He was just about five foot. And he had a very, very tough growing up experience. The, one of the worst things that ever happened to him. And I can't share that with you guys because of confidentiality, but he was stripped of his dignity and his, he was life. He was given a life sentence and he came into my classroom on the very first day. And I realized that he came there to have someone that was going to listen to him, that was going to give him a positive good morning, that was going to welcome him, and that was going to give him a reason to go to school. That happened the very first day. And I started realizing that I wasn't, as a classroom teacher, had to worry about what I was teaching. What I wanted to do was I wanted my students to be able to feel comfortable coming into my classroom. And that I, I truly believe 
that my gift, and, and, and I share this with you, is people. And I wanted to be able to give that people skill, that, that love for people. I wanted to give as much as I could to every kid that came into my classroom. So like even on the very first day in my class, and you guys got to understand this. Now, now I'm a big guy and I'm strong. I, I actually used to bench 465 pounds. Damn. And I, I could look, you know, with this mustache that I have, it, it, it looks like I'm a motorcycle guy. I look pretty darn mean. And as you said, I am a teddy bear and I do cry. I'm very emotional, very sensitive, but I'm able to share that with my students. I'm able to get real. I mean, get real. I'm able to be able to let go of having to be this macho, big guy, strong guy, man. And I'm able to be that person that people are going to trust and that, that teacher that people can, can enjoy being around and not be intimidated by. So on the very first day, I would do some really weird stuff because I always figured that on the very first day of school is the, the day that you're going to set the pathway for the entire class. So I always told my students that this is my phone number. And I used to give them my phone number and write it on the board. And then I used to jump up on top of the table and they're going, what the heck is Mr. Factor doing? And I said, as a teacher, I will never, ever, ever look down upon you. I will never think that I'm better than you or that I'm more than you or that being a teacher, I'm above you or whatever. And I'd jump down off the table and I'd get on my knees and I would tell my students that I am a teacher that cares about them, that will facilitate learning and that I'm the teacher that not only wants to teach you, but I also want to learn from you. And so I would set the stage. You know, some kids just remembered, oh, Mr. Factor did silly stuff like he used to eat chalk or something like that. Or that, that was a part of an abnormal psychology lesson. You know, <laughs> but they do remember it. And then some people remember that, you know, I used to throw things. And, and you know, I, I was definitely an actor in front of the classroom. But it was never, ever an act that I cared about kids. It was never, ever an act that they were the most important thing. And one other thing. Thing, adding to this is I learned early in my career that the most important resource that we have on this earth is people. It's true. So let's talk about the humanism thing, because yes. I learned about humanism from you. And, and it's, oh, just a little segue. It's so funny, all the different things that you mentioned about sociology and psychology, anthropology, and I took all of that in college, but I don't remember taking any of that in high school. I mean, I took history because it was required, obviously, but other than that, like the electives, I don't remember. I know I didn't have you for psychology. I know that, but it's funny how you were able to pass those interests. Oh, of just, you know, the cultural, because I took cultural, not physical anthropology. You passed on that interest to me somehow, even though I was never Hmm. one of your students in your classes. So So let's talk about the humanism stuff. Sure. Well, there's a a couple of great humanists that I really, probably the the first that I really came across was a guy by the name of Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers has a lot to do with believing in who you are and finding yourself. And, you know, there was, 
Carl Rogers always said, you know, once you know who you are, you know, no one could take that away from you. And, and he, he also had a, there was another psychologist that he kind of joined in with was, was a guy by the name of Maslow and Maslow, remember that hierarchy Mm -hmm. and, Maslow really believed that, you know, the first things that we do is we have um, the basic needs of survival. And then eventually, you know, we gain that, that point where we have safety. And eventually on the very top of that pyramid, we recognize the person that we are. Well, I always believed that stuff. And then when I went through my, my teacher training programs, I, I came across this guy by the name of Adler. And Adler was one of those that really believed in goal setting and really believed that when you pay attention to someone and you do positive affirmation, not like B.F. Skinner, you know, Skinner was, remember, the box and positive and negative reinforcements and stuff like that. These guys were more interested in the people's personalities. And so I kind of fell into not the Skinner box, but I fell into the human box that said, I care about people. And Adler believed that if you took an interest in people and you found out what made motivated them, you could use that as a tool to get them to do almost anything. And so I started working with students using Adler's approach of positive reinforcement and started uh, having kids. Remember the blue cards that we used to have at Mount Carmel? The blue cards. Kids took around and teachers filled out their grades on a Friday or on a lab day. And they would, you know, they would sign and they would say, you know, this is your grade. Even though it wasn't a grading period, it, it might have been the third week or the fourth week or the fifth week. Kids would take these little blue cards around. Well, anyway. No, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I remember the blue books, but not blue cards. I was one of the inventors of the blue card at Mount Carmel High School. And another guy that used it a lot was Coach Jolk. He used it for his football team to make sure that they were doing their homework. But I used it with the kids that were struggling in school and to help motivate them to get better grades and work. So when a kid carried a a blue card around, especially the first and second week, they had straight A's. And then it was their job to maintain it. So as an Adlerian theorist, a humanist, I would sit down with the kids and I would ask them, how are you doing in school? Let's take a look at your blue card. And, and rather than pointing out, because this is a mistake, if, rather than pointing out the fault and the bad things that were on that, I always talked about them last and talked about the good things on there. And then when it came to the low grade, I would always say, so what are, what's your goal? You know, what do you really want? How come you're getting that? What can you do to improve that? Next week when we check, could you have done those type of things? And so I was able to use Adlerian theory to be able to help motivate kids that were struggling in school and actually ran a program that was called the team program, which was actually for kids that were, I hate this word, at risk, but they were kids that had difficulty in school and needed added support. And so I ended up teaching those type of kids when I was a teacher at Mount Carmel. So that was humanism and Adlerian theory. And then later on, of course, I I bought into other social psychologists that were into, you know, working with people and helping people and and stuff like that. So um, I've always considered myself a true humanist. And there's one other thing, part of my background 
and this came back from the original UC Riverside. Remember I told you that I roomed with blacks? Mm -hmm. Well, I also am very, very interested in cultural acceptance and cultural integration. And so one of the clubs that I actually helped start at Mount Carmel High School was a group that was called Races United and that we ended up doing a bunch of different things that brought different people and different cultures together to understand one another better. And there was this camp called Camp Minitown, and it, it was a retreat that broke the barriers of social separation and brought people together to understand one another culture. So that was a big part of, of what humanism was. And, and so anyway, I'm going through this training. And one of the questions was, who are you? What are you? So let me ask you that, Lauren. Who are you? Wow. You know, what's, your, what's your background? Um, oh, my like national ethnicity type of background? Is that sure. what you mean? Sure. Why not? You can say um, so I am a generic white mutt in that I have a lot of different uh, national um, countries that I'm supposedly from, but they're all pale skinned. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, definitely from the honky motherland is my husband <laughs> and I call it. And um, I grew up Irish Catholic in the city of Philadelphia before wow. I I didn't moved, know that either. Yeah, before I moved around and then ended up in San Diego. And my some of my first friends, because it was a big city, uh, were either Black or Puerto Rican or other various ethnicities. And like the Irish were the Irish and the uh, the Italians were the Italians and the Jews were the Jews. And we all knew who each other was and we mingled somewhat, but there were lines that you didn't cross, you know? Thank you for sharing. And that's so common. And it, when I say common is that's how pe most people would describe themselves and, and, you know, they would break it up into ethnicity and some of their experiences. So I did the same thing when I was taking this, this class. And this guy at the very end, when we asked, you know, the same question, he goes, I'm a human. Mm. And it was like, wow. And I started thinking about that we're all humans and that the color of our skin or our last name or the color of our eyes or the type of hair that we have or where we were born, or what our religion was, or our language, we're all human. And I started really, really thinking about that stuff. And it was right about then that I had one of those moments, the reveals in my life, and it came from your class. And it came from a young man whose name was Gene. Gene Gephardt? Yes. I love Gene Gephardt. I love Gene Gephardt. He is like one of my changing life students. He is one of the sweetest young men that I'll ever, ever know in my entire life. One of my supporters, um, one of the people that I consider my nephew. So anyway, I, uh, you know, I honestly didn't have people that I felt, you know, that I couldn't get along with. And I always used to make statements about people that had challenges of that were gay and uh, you know i would i would use words like fag or queer or i would even i remember saying to my sons you can marry anybody you want 
no matter what color you are, what and they are whatever. But I said, if you bring home another guy, you'll give your dad a heart attack. And here you are, the class of 1987, and you guys were the most loving group. And there was this young man in your class, and his name was Gene. And I kept on thinking, why do you guys like Gene so much? I mean, this guy's gay. He's way out there gay. And, you know, you know, he's, he's, why do you guys accept him so much when, you know, he, and then I started realizing I accepted every single kid that came to my classroom. And I didn't know which guys were, you know, which people were gay or not. But I definitely knew Gene was. And I was a little audited by him. And I started realizing the more I watched Gene and the more I watched you guys, then I said to myself, Phil Factor, you need to let go of that. You need to let go of holding anything against someone for who they are. And so I started getting to know Gene and Gene was the most loving and to this day, the most loving person that I know. So we were going to Magic Mountain. Did you go on that trip? When we had the class trip? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Gene sat next to me on the bus going all the way up to Valencia. And part of our ride, he said, Mr. Factor, I would just like it so much if you would go on a ride with me. Oh. And so we went on the Swiss mix. I'll never forget. I I think I was laughing so hard I could have been peeing my pants. Because (laughs) here I am with Gene. And if you spent any time with Gene, you guys got to know that this guy will lighten your light up. He, he is the guy that brings the sun to the sun devil arena in my eyes. And, and he is, he is that person that allowed me to let go of my last holdout in accepting everybody. Later on, I found out that I actually had relatives that were gay and it was because of Gene that I never, ever thought anything that was anything but positive towards the people in my life that I love. So again, as a humanist, I believe that not only do I have something to offer, but people have something to offer to me, which is about them and their culture and their beliefs and their lifestyles and and who they are. So get this, at the last two years at Mount Carmel High School, I was the gay straight alliance advisor that those kids. Yes, I didn't know that. Those kids came to me because they knew they could trust Phil Factor. And I was the guy that was their their sponsor for their club. That's awesome. That's so great. So that's humanism, humanism, Lauren. Yeah. But after you got to know Gene, what did you tell your boys? Like, how did you change your. I told them I made a mistake and I told them and they knew Gene. And, and they actually got to experience Gene on, on one of our homecoming floats because he uh, helped build that train that went around the float. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. And my, and my sons were the ones that rode that train. And so my sons were a little confused, but I think they understood that their dad no longer felt that way. So I hate to tell you this, but it's already time to wrap it up. Oh. I know. I think that after your election and you get settled yes. into your new position on the city council, we should regroup. Yes. But I want to say a couple of things and then I'll go into like the last question, which I've been saving. So, you. you know, a lot of times I, I kind of force feed the theme of 
fate, serendipity, chance, universe, whatever. And I think if people have been listening, they can hear these forces happening in your life. You need to say those words particularly, but not in a political way, not in a whatever you've told every other interviewer who's interviewed you about your campaign, Mm -hmm. but in a my theme way of the fate, universe, all that stuff, serendipity. What what brought you to the point where you decided to run for office? My wife uh, came home from the luncheon. Are you making me cry again? <laughs> I didn't think I was on this one. I thought this. My wife came home. She sat next to this lady and the lady asked the question, do you know of anybody that you think should run for city council? And my wife said, yes, my husband. Mm-hmm. She came home and told me that. Wow. I still cry when I tell this story. And um, here my wife, who believes in me so much, said, I think you should run for Poway City Council. I think you're the right guy. And I looked at her and I thought, I, I looked at her again, and I thought, and I, I was lost for words. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do now? You, you put my name out there. And she goes, well, you need to call this person, at least talk to them. But what I got from that was how much my wife loves me, how much she believes in me, and how much all those years from high school to this day, that she stands behind me and that she's my best friend. And I guess, how can you turn down that campaign manager? How can you, I mean, she's definitely my first lady. That's the way it is. So what luncheon and what made this woman just, obviously you could say it was random, but I don't look at it that way. You know, something made her say that to Laurel, not knowing that she was going to say you probably, you know, so do you know why she asked her that? Well, because this lady was the vice president of the Democratic Party and her job was to recruit people that might run for office and that would represent the the Democrats in the town of Poway. And, And, you know, it's it's interesting. I'll, I'll say this. I chose not to even have the Democrats endorse me that I'm running in a nonpartisan position and that I choose not to be affiliated as a political party candidate, that I choose to run on the people first platform of being a humanist. And so even all it came from this lady, it honestly just opened up the door. And I think the last part that you need to know is I've realized that the pinnacle of my career, that humanism, that um, Maslow on the highest part of that pyramid is for me to be a city council member, or at least try to try to earn that, that, that elected position. And that's what's driving me. Well, I gotta tell you that when I first heard that you were running, my first thought is, of course he is, because he, he's a giver. 
he's a guy who can get things done. He's a guy who's not going to settle for status quo, who's going to go for what should happen, not what is happening. Mm. All of those things that, you know, I'm going to cry again, that, um, <laughs> that I think the same thing about me, honestly. Mm. And, um, and then you the are other, my niece, you know that. I know. We are related. Yeah. <laughs> And it was just serendipity that brought us both to be in each other's lives. But, um, you know, there's many, many, many people who are good people and who should be doing more for their community than they are, especially after they've retired from 41 years of teaching. And you don't have to be doing this. You could just be playing with your grandkids and no one would argue with you that that would be time well spent. So good for you that you're doing that. Um, And I think that the other thing I have to say about that to end it is that um, I'll be picking your brain about what it's really like, because I honestly don't think much of my city council members. There's certain things I'll say on the record and certain things I won't. But one of the things that seems true about our city council members is that they're looking for to like sort of stamp contracts so that they get money, you know, for development and stuff like that. And I don't really want any part of that. If there's a way that I could be on our city council to curb that behavior, I am interested in doing that. And my husband thinks the world of me the way that your wife thinks the world of you. (laughs) I've seen that. (laughs) Yeah. And he has said for a long time that I should be the mayor or a city council or something. Um, now, part of it is he just wants to me to give him a position of being sheriff. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I can't do that. But anyway, it's just one of his little pet dreams. But um, but yeah, he he thinks the world of me like Laurel thinks the world of you. And I'm going to interrupt you for a second. But see, that's another reason why I met you was that you were a leader, you were a standout, and all the way back in the class of '87 those elements were already a part of who you are. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm going to encourage you to continue that thought because I do know you that this is a part of who you are probably destined to be is that leadership in your community and, and to be able to act upon your thoughts right now is to take that step and consider being that leader in your community. In some ways I already have but on on a much smaller scale and so that would be like the next step that would be like where you kind of move up to i've also considered school board because it's just ridiculous what happens in most school boards nowadays across the country so i'm looking into both of those things a lot of people wondered why i wasn't going for school board but it, it was like you know probably a a different reflection in knowing that I had already had an impact on education Mm -hmm. that I had other areas, but, you know, being a leader, be it in the school board or city council member, a a lot of, a lot of things that you do to make a difference in the community are interrelated. And even all it's, it's different decision-making, you're still making a difference in the community one way or another. Well, I unfortunately have to let you go now. And I just want to say thank you for your time. I love you dearly. And thank you for your commitment to Poway. I miss Poway. Thanks. Thanks. And I, I have Thanks loved, for doing this. I've loved every minute of talking to you.
Well, it's been great. I feel like I need to give you a hug. So oh. I'm giving you one all the way from, you know, Poway, California, all the way to Colorado. Love you, man. You take care. Love you. Thanks. Bye. So as you can see, uh, there was a lot of crying. I uh, tried to edit out all of the tears and sniffles that I could. <laughs> um but I hope that uh, it did move you. Maybe you cried too. And if you are in or near Poway and you have been moved to check him out or actually just to get on the bandwagon and vote for him, the link to his election website is in the show notes. And I hope that he has inspired you. And I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for being a Revel Revel listener.